We're going to jump back into the parables. I'll get us um, back into context, back up to speed here in just a moment. But let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the sure and certain redemption we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that covered in his grace and his mercy, blessed with the gift of eternal life with you now and forever. We can see our life for what it is, a temporary testing, a temporary stewardship with a temporary cross that we might be raised with Christ Jesus and glorified with him eternally. Bless us with your Holy Spirit this night as we study your word. May you reveal your Son and the mysteries of your kingdom unto us, that we might ever grow into them more fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so just to, uh, and I see some new faces, that's great, that's wonderful. Um, Just to give you a recap of what we've done so far, in Mark chapter 4, there's an entire section in Mark's gospel where Jesus lays out how to understand the word in general, his preaching in general, and the parables in specific. There is a parallel to this in Matthew chapter 13, uh, just expanded with some different themes emphasized. And we've been spending our time in Matthew 13 now for some weeks. Let's flip there because we left off with one section in Matthew 13 remaining, and it's a great section, it's a convenient section, because it recaps everything that's gone before in Matthew 13. Now, part of what I want to do, too, is not just, you know, sort of try to construct an abstract theology of the parables. I think that that would be a mistake. We have to see how the parables are used by each of the gospel writers to their own ends and purposes. Then we're going to understand them in context, and we can apply and understand them more broadly or generally in our own context. Make sense? So it would be almost an alien thing to abstract the parables and just try to study them in a vacuum. That would be a mistake. We need to do it. We need to study them in their native soil. Matthew 13, if we're... uh, And by the way, if you do have a Lutheran study Bible, great. If not, you missed out. You should have ordered one for Christmas. Um, (laughs) Next up is Easter. But you'll want a study Bible. They're a great resource, even if you're uh, not Lutheran. But a reminder that on page 1609, you have this list of um, the parabolic sayings of Jesus. And that's yet another problem with studying the parables is what counts as a parable and what doesn't. Where does... uh, simile and metaphor, all those things you learned in maybe grade school or middle school grammar, where does the simile and the metaphor and the parable start and stop? And that's a that's a thorny issue, so much so that the study Bible simply gives you a lengthy list of parabolic sayings. And again, I just commend that to you and want to make you aware of that. Okay, in Matthew 13, Um, We, of course, have the parable of the sower, which is the opening instruction in regard to how we hear the word. We're reminded that the parables are selected by Jesus in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, that he would speak in parables and that he would do so so that those who reject his plain speech will not receive anything further from him. If you reject his plain speech, then even what you have 
His plain speech will be taken from you. But if you accept his plain speech, then even more will be given unto you, and that's the parables. And the parables, of course, Matthew highlights this for us, unfold like mysteries. Now, mystery in, in Christian theology proper doesn't mean something we don't know, right? That, that's not what a mystery is, you know? Who killed so-and-so with the candlestick in the dining room is a mystery. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, when we talk about mystery in the biblical sense, we can, we can refer to articles of the faith as mysteries. We can refer to parables as mysteries. We can refer in a more narrow sense to sacraments as mysteries. In fact, that's the mysterion from Greek is translated into Latin sacramentum and then into English sacrament. Okay. But a mystery is something that you can grasp. And it continually unfolds, continually unfolds to where you realize this unfolding could go on forever. I can't encapsulate the meaning. I can't comprehend in the literal sense of that word. I can't fully wrap my mind around this thing. That's a mystery. Okay? And it's a, it's a delightful thing because it means that you can never say, oh, yeah, the parable of the sower, I know that. Nobody can teach me nothing on that. Uh, you've misunderstood it at the most fundamental level. That thing's going to grow and perpetuate itself for all intents and purposes infinitely. Yeah. So that's a mystery. Okay. So um, again, I'll just draw your attention in chapter 13 down to verse 11. And you can get this right from uh, the mouth of the Lord. So the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? And he answers them, to you it has been given to know the secrets, the mysteria, that's the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens. But to them, namely those who have rejected me, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. So that that like treasury full is going to function with an inclusio in the verses we're going to cover here at the very end momentarily. But from the one who has not, the one who has rejected my plain speech, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, and we don't need to recover that ground. In Matthew 13, I'll draw your attention to one other element, and that's over at verse 35, because this is another uh, sort of parenthetical or narrative statement um, by Matthew as he's indicating to us what this teaching of Jesus means and what is here being unfolded, as it were. So just for ease, verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And you recall that our Lord is sometimes it's probably overstating it, but almost hostile toward the crowds because the crowds are following him and they're not getting it intentionally. And they're wanting the icing and not the cake, so to speak. They're, you know, hey, do that bread trick again, right? Um, oh, what's he saying about eternal life? Never mind that. Um, will you heal, uh, you know, Cousin Burnett's bunions? That's the, they're after all this superficial stuff, the healings and the miracles, but they're not paying attention to his word or why does these really come? 
That's why Jesus is speaking to the crowds in parables and saying nothing to them without a parable. All right, verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And of course, here uh, quoted is Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. Notice the first person. So who's speaking in Psalm 78? Jesus. So, again, the idea of having a red-letter Bible is only so useful. (laughs) In some respects, can actually mislead you. Because there are no red letters in the Old Testament, but Jesus is everywhere speaking in the Old Testament first person. Here's one example. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Uh, One more reflection. Matthew is doing what we would call sola scriptura. He's going back to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and saying, here's what they say. Here's what Jesus has done. He is fulfilling those scriptures. He is the Messiah of which those scriptures speak. So Matthew, all of the apostles do this, but Matthew, I think even so much more pronounced, uh, is doing sola scriptura all the way through. So as he opens his mouth in parables, he utters what has been hidden. There's this unveiling, this showing forth, this revealing, and it has been hidden from the foundation of the world. So again, this unfolding revelation, the the mysterion, the mystery, the revelation of that which has been hidden, and it's ongoing. Now, with these pieces in place, I think we're poised to really grasp the riches then of verses 51, technically through 53, that close out this section. And again, in Matthew's narrative, there are five discourses, five extended teachings sections of Jesus. And this discourse is the third of five, and it is on uh, the parables. And free, what, what the scholars will do to see an indication that the statement is over is look at 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, in just a minute, we're going to go to Matthew 18, and we'll know that that discourse, the fourth discourse ends because it'll say something to the effect of, and when Jesus had finished these sayings or these words. So Matthew's way of signifying that we've got a section ended there. All right. At verse 51, have you understood these things? He asks his disciples. They said to him, yes. And he said to them, nonsense. (laughs) He could have, but the Lord's always so charitable. He's like, okay, great. He does this in several places, by the way. Um, he's, He's a very charitable teacher. So they respond, yes, we've understood all these things. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe, now a scribe is one who's a student in the scriptures, copying the scriptures, thoroughly acquainted with the scriptures. Obviously, at the first historic level where Jesus is saying this is only the Old Testament scriptures, neither Matthew's gospel nor any of the New Testament. So there's these There's these two levels we can always read the New Testament Gospels through. Um, Number one, Jesus is referring to those who who are students of the Old Testament Scriptures. As Matthew writes it, of course, it expands to the New Testament Scriptures as well, so both Old and New. 
every scribe, every student of the scriptures, who has been mathetoithes. A mathetes is disciple, so who has been discipled or trained, as the ESV has it, for the kingdom or the reign of the heavens, is like a, and here the English leaves a full word out, is like a anthropo, like a man, comma, a oikodespote, a master of the house. So why I highlight, you can see why um, an English uh, editor would see a man, a head of the household as redundant and unnecessary and leave it out. Why I point it out is because I think that in Matthew, Luke, and John, with my highest level of confidence being John, and then Matthew, and then Luke, there is a theology of what it means to be human, to be a man, to come into the fullness of manhood. There's a, and this this comes to us, by the way, in the Two of the earliest and most prominent theologians of the second century. So first century, by the end of the first century, you've got the New Testament written, and maybe you've got the Didache, the first catechism that we have written. And then in the, in the years to follow come these two men, Ignatius and Irenaeus. And they both have these profound and expansive theologies. Well, Irenaeus has profound and expansive. Ignatius has tight but profound uh, theology of what it means to be a human. So Ignatius, on his way to martyrdom, will write to his followers, don't try to rescue me. Don't try to stop this from happening. Let me die that I may truly live. Let me die that I may, in fact, be born into the image of my master. So the idea being that life here is, in a sense, embryonic. In fact, the early church would come to understand those who fall away from the faith. So they look at it almost like this. This is frequently how you get it in the preaching. Baptism is conception. You become a son of the father. Right? You're conceived anew. If you apostatize before you die, you're stillborn. You had life, but that life departed before you were even born. So to be baptized is to be conceived in the womb, and to die is to be born. And to be born into what? God has, uh, it's really a, a stage yet, but it's to take one more step toward that which God from the beginning has created you to be. So there's an analogy here, like, all right, you've got like the seed of an oak tree. I don't know how big it is. Maybe one of you does. Just my finger size here. But you would hold up that seed and you'd say, is, is there an oak tree here? Absolutely. I mean, that's what it is. Okay. In the same way as a seed is to an oak tree, so we are in this life to what God intends us to be unto eternity. All right. 
So then it's the same thing. You never cease to be you. But when God creates you, when God conceives you in your mother's womb, it's not as though he says, well, that's it. I just want you to remain this seed forever. You grow up to the maturity of what it is to be a seed, and then you'll just die. And maybe then forever, you sort of remain this seed, just a seed that's made perfect or something. No, that's not how God does it. Let us make man in our image is at one at one and the same time complete. Let, it, let there be an oak seed. Okay? It's complete, but it's also simultaneously not complete. Let that seed grow up onto the tree. Let that man made in my image grow up unto the image of the spiritual man. Remember St. Paul doing this? So Irenaeus says, that was plan A from the start. Plan A from the start was that Adam and Eve would go from terrestrial life and its goodness to spiritual life and its fullness, each one of us being conformed in the glory and image of the Son of God. What Satan did was put a stop and a halt to that plan. And so God in Christ Jesus has to repair that plan. And what we are inheriting is what God has intended from the very beginning. Hopefully that makes sense. But that was the earliest church's theology and sort of this important and profound theology of what it is to become anthropos, man. You remember this climactically in John's gospel when Jesus is faithful even unto even unto being scourged within an inch of his life, mocked, rejected, crowned with thorns, robed in purple, placarded before the people, and climactically, Pilate says, Hedu ha anthropos, or ecce homo, behold the man. Which it, now that's the height. That's the height. That is exactly what God would have us be as men in this life. That's the telos, to be faithful unto him no matter the cost. That is in this age, in this lifetime, the height to which we can grow. Make sense? And now that trajectory doesn't stop. That trajectory goes on unto the resurrection and unto the full glorification that Christ has given us by grace. Okay, so when we read then here, um, therefore, every scribe, every student of the scriptures who has been discipled for the kingdoms of the for the kingdom of the heavens, I mean, let the profundity of that language soak in. Every student of the scriptures who has been discipled for the kingdom of the heavens is like anthropa, is like the man is like the oikodespote, the master of the house, the head of the household. Um, now, what is the oikodespote? How has Matthew used that before? The only other place he's used that previously are two. Um, jump with me back to Matthew 10.25. And I'm sorry, I saw a hand pop up. Um, please bear with me just one second while I make this point. And then um, pop your hand back up, and, and I'll I'll jump on it. And those of you online, if you got to grab my attention, you got to do some big movement like this to catch my eye. Okay, so I can include you. All right, at Matthew ten, um, go to twenty four, just so we get the whole context here. 
Okay, a disciple, a mathetes, and remember what we just read, the one who is mathetoites, so same language, trained, disciple. Here in 1024, a disciple is not above his didaskalon, his teacher. So a mathetes is not above his didaskalon. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a doulos, a slave, above his curion, his lord or his master. It is enough for the disciple, the mathetes, to be like his didaskalon. And the servant, the slave, the doulos, to be like his curion, his master, his lord. That is the goal. If they have called thee oikodespotain, the head of the household, the master of the house, Beelzebub. Now that's a direct and clear reference to Jesus and them calling Jesus Beelzebub or Beelzebul. How much more will they malign those of his household. So, in other words, when we're introduced to the oikodespote in Matthew's gospel, it is very clearly Jesus. And then you can see then what this invitation, so to speak, I mean, I don't think it's precisely an invitation. I think it's more than that, different than that. But if you go back then to um, 52, and you see, therefore, every scribe who has been discipled for the kingdom of, he- of heavens, of the heavens, is like the man, the oikodespote, the master of the house, who brings out of his, they soron, that's where we get the sorus, out of his treasury, treasure, what is new and what is old. In other words, the entire point of studying the parables, of studying the word, of studying the mysteries, is to be conformed into the image of the one who gives us these things. And then, again, solely by his grace, solely by his spirit, to gain a sort of mastery over it, I mean, very clearly small m here, such that we are like him and bring out of his, the oikodespotes, Christ's treasure, what is new and what is old. So how does that function? I think that functions very clearly for pastors in their office, but it functions very clearly in you as heads of your household and what you do. Uh, for your household, in explicating, bringing out, uh, exegeting the scriptures. Okay, let me pause there. I saw a hand, if you can remotely remember. Yeah, sorry about that. The first one after this is, can you talk about the early church fathers, the idea of becoming human and what that means? I wonder, as opposed to what? As opposed to remaining peace? And then I think, when you just mentioned conforming to um, the image of the one who gives us the teaching of God created in the fall. So then, make me think, so then man became like a beast of sorts in the fall and then passed the Eden. But then it, the other thought was related to teaching. Would it be correct to say that Jesus isn't exactly falling over himself trying to sell his message to those that won't receive it? As oh, yeah. opposed to a lot of education, uh, the idea is like, oh, well, the student isn't interested. I've got to do something to pass it up. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even from a marketing standpoint, Jesus has a rather strong point, right? It, it, the more you try to sell someone something, the more they're not going to want it. Because you just keep lowering the value of it. Oh, please, what if I do this? What if I do that? It's not valuable in and of itself. I've got to cajole you into this thing. And Jesus takes the opposite. This is priceless. And if you can't realize that, I can't help you. And there is that sort of like, whoa, whoa, what he has must actually have worth. It must actually be that pearl of great price or that field with the treasure. It must might actually be worth everything I have and selling it. Now, there's lots of different ways to think of and frame your, your earlier question, but I think this is a helpful way. So remember in the creation, um, Genesis chapter 1, everything is uh, tohu wabohu, formless and void. Okay, and then God creates from that order, and the crown of that order is man. Okay. And there's even a sense in which he takes from the formlessness and void, he brings the ordering ultimately of the soil, and from the soil he brings forth the crown, Adam, Adam, the man of the soil. Now, when Adam falls, what is the curse? From dust you were taken to dust you shall return. And the whole thing collapses back into tohu wabohu, formlessness and void. Is that not exactly where we are? No one knows the truth. No one even thinks there can be truth. Everything is formlessness. Everything is disordered. Everything is chaotic. Everything is returning to its original cosmic state of chaos, right? So, all right, then from that vantage point, from this tohu wabohu of the fall, God recreates again. But he does so not with the old Adam, but with a second Adam. And by the way, this is not only Paul's theology, but then this is Irenaeus' theology. This is recapitulation, capitus head. We need a new head, and Christ has come to make a new creation. And, of course, you hear Jesus say these same things, the same thing. Behold, I am making all things new. Okay. So that'll give you a, a frame and a way, and I'm not suggesting it's the only way, but it is a helpful way, I think, and an, and an ancient one, a very old one. Okay, did I kind of connect with your comment? From the dirt and into the yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got this beautiful Pauline play on that with the with putting the the dead body of man into the earth, even as Christ was planted into the earth. But as uh, as one plants a seed into the earth, one doesn't do so because that's the end, but rather because that's the beginning. And so Christ has already sprang up the first fruits, which means there are many others to follow, and that's us. So it's kind of beautiful. We even have that. It's kind of become crass because we've lost the biblical meaning of it. Just say, hey, we got to go plant so-and-so. I don't know if anybody said that to you. I hear it, you know, oh, so-and-so died. We got to go plant him, you know, but it's, um. but there's actually a profound biblical truth in Christian reality in that language. That's exactly what we're doing. It's exactly what we're doing. We are planting them, 
knowing that just as we plant a seed for the purpose of it rising up, we plant our dead in the Lord for the sole purpose of them being resurrected glorious. I like that a lot better than circling the dream. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I think so, too. I think so, too. So maybe for my burial, I'll call it the planting. Right? <laughs> um, plant dad, yeah. Okay. Um, seems like I was leaving something on the table. Any? Was there any other, uh, we're okay? Um, just, just one other thing to point out, because it happens immediately in this section. Um, 1327 is the Oiko Despote, and I hear again, I think it's very clearly Christ. So just glance at that in passing before we move on. But uh, 1327, and the servants of the master, remember we're in the, the parable of the weeds, so the um, the douloi, the slaves of the curie, the Lord, come to him and say, curie, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. Okay, so that'll give you a sense for the... Um, is that not the week of Despote? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is the master of the house. There it is. And the servants of the master of the house. Sorry, I messed that up. The servants, the douloi of the Oiko Despote, the master of the house, came and said to him, Curie, Lord. Sorry about that. My notes were scrambled. Okay, so very clearly there, that's the Lord. And so, again, I think that that just solidifies for us that as we are students of the scriptures, as we are discipled, um, into the reign of the kingdom of the heavens, we become like the man, like the oikodespotes, the master of the house, like Jesus, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so likewise, I mean, this is an invitation toward creative theology. And that's sort of like the, it's one of the paradoxical aspects of sola scriptura. Oh, sola scriptura, I have to bind myself narrowly to the scriptures. It sounds restrictive. But precisely in doing that, are you set free and you have this abundance of biblical creativity that you tap into, the very creativity of God himself. And so then we all become stewards of that uh, to one degree or another. Okay, so that is for us the purpose of the parables, because we are his disciples. We are those who receive his simple word, believe in him, and thus he gives us grace upon grace, gift upon gift in these mysteries. All right, and then... Again, 53 wraps up that section in Matthew 13. So we are then ready to move on to another section. Uh, before we do anything lingering Matthew 13 wise? Well, this may not be Matthew 13, but uh, a few months ago you said our goal as men of our household is to get our wives and our children into heaven. We did. Sounds right. Now, now there's a uh, comment where you said that, you know, the goal is become like the master or the teacher but did, did you also say that kind of in our homes our goal is to have our children to become like us in our discipling of them and the thought came into my mind chip off the old block you know that expression mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the greatest compliment i think as a parent would be that when you see someone observe the behavior of one of your children and they say that's a lot like you or what whatever and, uh, mm-hmm. 
Do I have that kind of right or am I stretching? Oh, no, absolutely right. I mean, you've tapped into something. You've really tapped into the beauty and the majesty that runs through what we call vocation in the Christian sense, vocatio, the divine calling of God. But that is everywhere in all of our these vocations, this order of creation, we're reflecting his glory within the place that we've been put. So... Um, Think of a husband reflecting the glory of Christ's love for the church. You reflect that glory unto your own spouse. Is the church deserving of Christ's love? No, neither is your wife. Love her as Christ loves the church. And so you're showing forth that glory. Same with um, as God is our father and we are his children. So then also if you're a father with your children, right? And so... That shines forth. And so from a top-down perspective, if you will, that just continues to sort of redound downward, okay? But then if you look at it from the other angle, from earth up, then it becomes uh, imitatio, imitation. So the, so the um, children are inspired by their father and love him because he first loved them and desire to be like him. And because the father loves God, because God has first loved him, the father is being conformed to the image of God. They're trying to be conformed into the image of their earthly father who is in the image of God. That's just one aspect, right? That's, that's how that functions within the ordering or the economy of creation. And then, of course, part and parcel of that, though, is, is telling them, hey, look, you're your own children of God. You know, it's kind of a fun game. I have young kids. You can play these fun games still. If you have young kids, great. If you have grandkids, great. Who's your dad? You are, dad. That's so stupid. <laughs> Not really. Who's your real dad? Who's your eternal dad? Who's your father, even if I'm not around? Who's going to keep you safe and protect you, even if I'm not here? Your heavenly father, right? So you get to play with that kind of. Um, in the order of creation, outside of the order of creation. Both have their complete truth, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. I remember something about the seed dying. And just mm-hmm. about the, this John 12 passage. Is that a similar thing where mm. I say he wants a grave, we falls here and dies, it remains below. Is that yeah. the yeah, same, yeah. same thing? Okay. Yeah. And Jesus is very explicitly there talking about his death mm-hmm. and the necessity of his death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the fruitfulness of that death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so then what, what I want to do with you then, since we're in Matthew, is just go forward to Matthew 18. And this is um, referred to as the Discourse on the Church, and it runs Matthew 18 through uh, 19.1. In fact, if you want to just glimpse at 19.1... Um, You can see how uh, it's recorded by Matthew. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. And you can see how, again, the, um, the chapter breaks are somewhat arbitrary, because properly speaking, those words belong to the previous section, showing how it is wrapped to a close, the end of another discourse. And again, this is on the discourse of the church. So as we are going to look then at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiving servant, you're going to see how those are wrapped up and used by our Lord 
in terms of his teaching the disciples in regard to the nature of his church. So, and I think this is a good skill to cultivate. I'll try to do it as best I can. But a good skill to cultivate is, of course, I think I think what's hammered home to us as Christians is sort of the deep reading of Scripture and the trying to, you know, get it. But another skill to cultivate is a superficial fast reading. Because that that lens will reveal much to you as well. And saying, I don't know what that means. I don't care. Keep going. Uh, because you're likely to have a like sort of in the same way, um, if you were in a if you were in a plane zipping over the tree line, you're not going to notice any specific tree in particular, but you're going to get a sense of the whole forest, right? So don't let your Bible study just become down in the forest, picking at every pine needle and acorn. I mean, that has value, of course, but every so often fly above and get the lay of the land. That's what we'll try to do in order to see the context here of the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiven servant. So right at 18.1, just trying to fly high and fast. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, interesting that Jesus doesn't outright scold them. The the desire to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is, frankly, a noble desire. This is one of the ways, by the way, that we as Christians, I think, have become feminized. Because one, and implicitly so, in a way that we're not likely to understand, maybe even accept, I don't know. But there is part of man that is made to achieve. Even in small ways, even if you say, I mean, what man, you know, engages in a hobby and says, boy, I hope I, I hope I just, you know, stay at this skill level forever. You're always trying to increase your knowledge, your skill, your talent, whatever it is, whether it's your, whether it's your livelihood or whether it's a hobby, there's something built in with man to conquer, to achieve. And we don't need to shut that off when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. I think sometimes that can be mistaken as like, just pure self-interest. That's not always the case. Jesus doesn't scold or correct them on this point, but rather he changes the trajectory and in some ways turns it upside down, but it's still there. Verse two, and calling to him a pideon, a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, amen, I say to you, unless you turn, that's the language of repentance. It's just the strefe language, but it's still here in turn away from your, your present way of thinking and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the way they're thinking about greatness will actually preclude them from the kingdom. They're thinking about it in a worldly way. Jesus is going to give them a heavenly way to think about greatness and the pursuit of it. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. So not greatness a la the world, but greatness a la humility. Christ is precisely the greatest of all because he's the servant of all. What do we all hold Christ in the absolute highest esteem for? The lowliness of his death on the cross. His absolute lowest act is his most glorious act. His humiliation is his exaltation. And that's the pattern and frame then of what it is to grow into the fullness of manhood. 
Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child, again, we're still with the piety on language. We have been all the way through. In my name, receives me. So there's a, just a very brief hint and savor of whatever you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done unto me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these micron, who believe in me to sin? And remember, Jesus has a little piety on right in front of him. Okay. And he says that this one has faith. So this is one of the texts where Jesus himself can talk about little children having faith. And again, we can discuss that deep, more deeply if we need to in a dogmatic way, but faith is subcognitive, sublingual. It's a matter of the heart. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a trusting in God that he works within us that exists, whether you are full-on Alzheimer's, whether you are comatose, whether you are asleep. Faith goes much deeper than your ability to think that faith and speak that faith. All right, so again, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these micron who believe in me. Now, here I get grumpy with the English because it confused me for probably decades of my life. To sin, that's not really good. Scandalise, to stumble, to fall away. Uh, this is sometimes brought up. I don't know if the imagery really is necessary. It's a little anachronistic to make too much of it. Any of you have pavers in your backyard? A scandalizon is the paver that pops up like this, and you catch your foot on it, and it sends you tumbling. That's a scandalizon. It's a stumbling block, okay? So what is it to be scandalized in this context? It's to fall away from Jesus, if you want to use that language of the brick or the stone turned up, you're following Jesus, and you stumble and fall, and you can no longer follow him. You've fallen down. So, again, then whoever causes one of these little ones to fall, fall away from me, that's a better translation. It would be better for him if a great millstone were fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, again, I, I think in common way of thinking, this has to do with like some sin against a child, you know, with one degree or another. But that's not really what's in view. What's in view is, is destroying the faith of another. So you can already see then how this lays a foundation for what's to follow in regard to Jesus' teaching of the church. Sort of foundation point is humility. In humility is in greatness, and the absolute worst thing you can do in the context of the church is cause one of your fellow believers to fall away from Christ and lose eternal salvation. All right. Um, so, woe to the world, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Now, again, this takes you in all wrong directions, or at least it took me in all wrong directions, because the language is still scandal on. In fact, temptations to sin is the English translation of scandal on. So what, what, what would I think would be a more accurate translation? Woe to the world um, 
because of the scandal on, or woe to the world because of that which would cause one to fall away from Christ. And isn't that then what Jesus exactly teaches? Like, even if your own hand were to cause you to fall away from Christ, cut it off. Okay. So, in the first place, Jesus is speaking in a shocking and hyperbolic way, which he often does, as do many rabbis, as do many good speakers and teachers who we admire. I don't want to take anything away from that. But what Jesus says makes a lot more sense if you understand that temptations to sin and the language of temptation and sin that follows in this section all have to do with falling away from Christ. Okay, so let me read that for you. Woe to the world for the scandalon. For it is necessary that scandalon come, but woe to the one by whom the scandalon comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to be scandalized, to fall away from Christ, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. You're going to be thrown into the eternal fire as a disciple of Christ simply because you sin? No. But would you be thrown there if you fall away from Christ? Absolutely. So then you see the way our Lord is speaking in this section. Likewise, then parallel in verse 9, and if your eye causes you to be scandalized, fall away from Christ. Really graphic language here from our Lord. Pluck it out, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the Gehenna or hell of fire. So, The worst thing you can do is cause someone else to fall away from Christ. The other side of that coin, the worst thing you can do is you fall away from Christ. (laughs) Okay? And I think that that actually makes this section really clear. Uh, Some folks, um, one of our profs at Fort Wayne, because this whole section is on the church, and because the previous section has to do with not scandalizing one of these little ones who believes in me, is inclined to read this as the body of Christ. Okay. And so that is to say in the full body of Christ, if one of the members of the body of Christ is going to cause the whole body to fall into hell, better to cut it off, which would be then in keeping with excommunication, which would then be in keeping with what comes, what you probably know from Matthew 18. um, If he will not hear the church, treat him as a tax collector. Okay sinner. So excommunication may be in view if this is viewed corporately, and the language might even bear that out because the yous and the yours are, um, well, I don't know about here specifically, David, maybe you could tell me. I don't feel like looking it up right this second. Um, But throughout this section, it tends to be plural speech, as is almost always the case with Jesus. Okay, that gives us the context enough then to hear the parable of the lost sheep and sort of reflect on it. See that you do not despise one of these micron, little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Um, This is a passage that, um, that functions greatly in the discussion of the beatific vision, that the essence of heaven is to see the Lord. And Jesus referring to the angels who, even as they are ministering to 
whether it's little children literally or little children spiritually, are always beholding the face of the Father, even as they go about their business. So an intriguing idea that the beatific vision doesn't simply mean that we'll be standing, you know, slack-jawed and gate-mouthed, staring at the Lord for all eternity, but rather that whatever it is we do in the age that is to come, no matter what, we will always be beholding the face of the Father, just as the angels do even now. All right, that's an aside. Don't need to go probably down that rabbit hole. Um, and this also factors into the whole guardian angel bit, but you can see that it's not really, not precisely what Jesus is after. It's, I don't think it's precluded, of course, but not precisely what Jesus is after saying every little, every person has a, its own guardian angel. Verse 12, what do you think? And, and here's what I mean. The you is plural. <clears throat> if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. Now this language also, uh, Planethe, which is the word where we get planet, one that, you know, because if you're looking up at night sky, a planet wanders, everything else is uniform. Okay, but that takes on a technical sense in the writings of the apostles uh, to planao is to wander away. So you can think of um, Isaiah 53 going way back. Um, All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has planaoed, has wandered his own way or gone his own way. Okay, so that the idea of autonomy and going your own way. I mean, this is where, like, probably probably the most subtly satanic creed that exists is follow your heart. <laughs> That's the surest way to get you far, far away from the Lord, is to follow your heart, to, to go your own way. Okay, so that language of astray um, cues us in. If a man has a hundred sheep, we know the Lord is our shepherd. And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that, uh, of one that is astray? Um, you know, it's in, because we're so removed from the agrarian, uh, many people say, no, that doesn't make sense. And he wouldn't do this. And that's a sort of uh, illogical thing to do. You know, just cut your losses, let the one die and keep the 99 safe. But if you ask anyone in agrarian culture uh, or in the Middle East, who there are still shepherds to this day, they're sure it's heck going after that one. So I think that's a more faithful way to read and understand what our Lord is saying. Like he assumes by the very structure of his question that the answer is going to be in the affirmative. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Obviously the answer is yes. And if he finds it, Amen, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that went astray. Don't read too much into that. At first, at first glance, just take it like, I don't know. Um, you know, you've lost some tool or you've lost your pair of sunglasses and you find it. You're like, oh. thank God. Well, that sense of relief washes over you, right? And And you found it. There's a there's a rejoicing that takes place there and you're rejoicing and you're not thinking about all your other tools that are in place. Right. So don't, I would, I would just argue, don't read anything more into that than that. 
There's rejoicing that takes place. Otherwise, you end up with this, like as the moral of the story. Does he not rejoice more over the one who went astray whom he's found than the 99 who did not need to be found? Therefore, go and sin boldly that the Lord may rejoice over you, right? Go get lost as much as you can. It would, in fact, be the moral of the story, that you could increase the shepherd's joy every time he finds you. But that, I think, is completely alien to the text. Okay, so what is the shepherd's attitude toward one that has gone astray, toward one that has been scandalized and left the flock? And you can see how that functions in the church. What should be our attitude as disciples toward those whom have gone astray? To go search out and seek and try to find them. Now, the language here of Jesus is if he finds it. No guarantee. Some sheep don't want to be found. If he finds it and brings it home, then he rejoices and rejoices even more so. And that ought to be our attitude as the church instead of, oh, looks like so-and-so is back. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so good to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. What are you doing for lunch today? (laughs) That might be a healthier response. Okay, so our Lord's attitude toward the lost and what he would have his church's attitude, and pastors in specific here, uh, our attitude toward those who go astray. All right, verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these micron should perish, even one who does, in fact, go astray or depart. So that is... um. He doesn't want you to be the cause of others falling away. He doesn't want you to fall away. And he wants his church to have his heart, which is to seek and to save the lost. All right, so the parable of the lost sheep here functions in an ecclesiastical mode. Let me pause there, see if you have any thoughts, reflections. Obviously, I I think I did a fairly superficial job. So if you see something that is obvious that I missed, please feel free to add that in. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my favorite go-to is where Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. And while everyone else is shouting Hosanna and having a parade, at least at one point, if not uh, maybe even for some significant period of time, he's weeping. And he's weeping over Jerusalem, his own people. And he's weeping um, because he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my people, my people. I think this is in the prophetic sense of Jerusalem, all his people. How I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have. Now, there's a mystery here that would take us another hour to explore all the facets of. But texts like this make it clear that if one, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You can, you can reject that and put yourself outside of that, but that's on you, not on him. And I think, I think Jesus spells that too. He, and he always does this. I mean, this is, this is Jesus. Like, where's the gospel? Very frequently with Jesus, it's hidden in one word. And I've become increasingly aware that that one word that Jesus uses is in English, whoever. That's a ridiculous word. Whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Seriously, whoever, that's what he says. It's an incredible word. I mean, because you can think of you can think of every last villain on the face of the earth. You can think of yourself and everything you've been given, and how to 
whom much has been given, much will be required, and all the ways that relativistically you probably failed worse than Hitler. <laughs> St. Paul thought so. He didn't point to any wicked king or wicked personage from the Old Testament or his own era. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst there is. <laughs> but if the Lord would redeem one such as me, then who will he not redeem? Whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So I think that that's God's attitude, and that's important, and that's the thrust of the gospel. Yeah, please. Circling back to the uh, uh, comment or the instruction that uh, whoever causes one of the little ones to sin, a believer, I'm thinking of an unequally yoked marriage in which a person enters into a marriage, they have children. The one who's a believer wants the children to be baptized, so they have been given faith. And then, let's say it's the male, he's the clicker watching football, and you know the children, they don't, they're confused. They they go, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, well, you just go to that church. Mm, mm, but, yeah. I can just see where that God, God's order is so confused there, and the little ones who have been given this faithful baptism, they... It, it's it's so important to for you know for, for marriages to be equally yoked with believers because yeah. children by their nature want to drive a truck through their parents anyway even if they're two Christians solid as a rock mm -hmm. they're trying to divide them so anyway I just yeah yeah it's a great observation I thought of that uh, you know the penalty what is it it's better than a, or a millstone around their neck etc you know so it, there's a huge penalty. Oh yeah, yeah. There have been um, there have been studies uh, specific to Christianity, I believe, but then also more broadly, just any faith tradition. You can't do theology by sociology. It's a bad way of doing it. Um, so I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that sometimes truths we're told of by the scriptures bear themselves out when we analyze it statistically. And one of those is, and I think that what this bears out is the importance of the ordering of creation so that the father whether and this is true whether you're talking about any religion or whether you're talking about christianity if the father is not there the kids are likely to not be there when they become adults if the father is there and i mean there are actually like set values put to this and it's ex ex extremely high something like in the 70s or 80s i'd have to go back and look percent of like if, if dad's just there they have a seven or eighty percent 70 or eighty percent chance of going uh whereas if dad's not there that drops dramatically so that's just the power of the order of creation and saying this guy who i look up to if it's not important to him it's not important to me so that i mean that just um yeah simply showing up <laughs> That is so much of fatherhood, isn't it? Just being there. And that and that is absolutely true with church. You know, I, I, I lament this all the time because, um, you know, I don't lament it on a superficial level. I lament it on a deep level of what's, you can have the most devi devout, pious father who's trying to raise his children in the mo most devout and pious way and as soon as baseball or soccer or swimming or whatever it is falls on a Sunday, he says, okay, let's do this. He's just shown by his actions, which speak infinitely louder than his words, 
a pattern of life that if this is more important, it's more important. And he undercuts himself tremendously um, by allowing that, right? Because he's, he's shown his kids in an almost irreparable way what really matters when push comes to shove. So it's not soccer, it's my rest, it's my work, it's my play. And hey, it just later in life, you have that excuse written in. So I know that that's, um, that's like a heavy thing to hear, uh, but it's also an encouragement. And I think, um, yeah, we, we've got to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. In my thinking of it, especially in this kind of w- really wicked, really upside down context. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's tough to fetch out, but I, I'm generally of the opinion with maybe some exceptions that a father ought to insist upon his children going to church with him on Sunday, regardless of what that does to the marriage. Cause that's on her. That's on the wife. And there are probably other instances of that where the husband just has to bear that cross. Even if that cross is, she leaves him. She left him because why he was faithfully carrying out the duty that God gave him. Uh, that's, that's a terrible torturous cross to bear, but that's a cross to bear. And, I, again, I'm not trying to create some law here, some universal, but I'm saying that probably in principle, that ought to be increasingly our attitude as men, uh, as opposed to the other, the other direction, the other trajectory. This is what God has given me to do. I'm going to do it. You do what you have to do. Right. Okay, I see um, we're, we're just over two minutes, and that's, that's fine because um, we're kind of right in the in the middle of uh, Matthew 18. So next week, we'll just sort of retrace very quickly so that we don't lose our bearings. We'll fly high and fast over Matthew 18 that you're probably familiar with, the church discipline section, and then see how that ties in with the parable of the unforgiving servant um, that rounds out and finishes Matthew 18. Okay, so we'll close for prayer and I'll hang out if... Uh, you know, if you have any questions or if anything was unsettling, I'm happy to, to talk about that with you right after we're done. Let's close with the prayer our Lord has taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.